How have you been conditioned to view other people who are not like you? In particular, people of a different race. In my own case, my mom was a kind and gracious woman, but she looked down on blacks. My dad was a kind and gracious man, but he looked down on Hispanics. Now, both of my parents worked hard to treat everyone well, but in their private conversations, they sometimes were derogatory about those people. Those other people of a different race who are not like us. And so without consciously being aware of it, I was taught by my parents to think tribally. And my tribe was my race. As a result, as I grew up, I, I subtly viewed people of color as inferior to me. And thankfully, this began to change when I became a follower of Jesus. You see, when I read my Bible, I learned that God's mercy is offered to people from every nation and every race and every ethnic group without exception. And then I found myself in church worshiping alongside blacks and Asians and Hispanics. And they became my friends. Some of them became my spiritual mentors. All of that changed my world. And through these experiences, I learned that there are no subordinate tribes in the kingdom of God. We are one equal community, and to act otherwise would be unjust. To act otherwise would be a sign of inappropriate racial pride and a lack of humility. And it's because of things like this that God needs to continually remind us in Scripture that the values of his kingdom are different than the values of this world. And that's why God prompted an ancient Hebrew prophet to write some powerful words about justice and humility, words that are the theme for this series of messages. They're recorded for us in Micah chapter 6, verse 8. And if we could have that slide on the screen, I'd like us to read that together. What does the Lord require of you to act justly and to love mercy and to walk humbly with your God? Now, I often think that the ancient prophets did not, excuse me, did not fully realize the impact of the words that God gave them to write and to speak. And I think that's clear in the case of Micah because he, like all of the Hebrews, was very full of pride about his status as a Jew. And he did not show humility toward non-Jews. He looked down on them. You see, he was conditioned to think tribally. And Jesus came to change such thinking. He made it clear that Jews and non-Jews are equally welcome in the kingdom of God. Jesus told us that he would take upon himself the judgment of God so that God's mercy could be offered to everyone, Jew and Gentile. And by doing that, tribalism would be abolished. The Apostle Paul spells this out very clearly in the book of Ephesians chapter 2, verses 11 to 20. Let's take a look at the first few verses. Paul's writing to believers living in the city of Ephesus, and he says, Therefore, remember that formerly you who are Gentiles by birth and called uncircumcised by those who call themselves the the circumcision, which is done in the body by human hands. Remember that at that time 
at that time, before Jesus, you were separate from Christ, excluded from citizenship in Israel, and foreigners to the covenants of the promise, without hope and without God in the world. Ah, but now, in Christ Jesus, you who once were far away have been brought near by the blood of Christ. So as Paul says, before Jesus, the Gentiles were far from God. They were not part of Israel, so they were not directly included in God's promises. And yet, here's a great tragedy. Instead of loving these people who didn't know God, the Jews chose to despise them. For example, Paul writes here about how the Jews practiced circumcision. It was a ritual given to them by God, and it was to demonstrate that they were, in fact, the people of God. Yet the Jews didn't view this practice with humility as a sign of God's mercy to them. They paraded this fact with arrogance as a sign that they were spiritually elite. They called Gentiles uncircumcised dogs and kept them at arm's length. Why did they do that? Because the Gentiles were not of their tribe. And when Jesus came, he broke that pattern by reaching out to Jews and Gentiles. And because of that, we who are not Jews, and I believe that probably includes most everybody in this room, we who are not Jews now can get connected to God. Jesus brought us into God's family by paying the price for sin that every person deserves. You see, God's perfect justice requires full payment for sin. And this payment is the shedding of innocent blood. Think about that. From God's perspective, sin is of such significance that a living creature must die in order for forgiveness to be granted. And God does not want us to avert our eyes from this painful fact. And so a faithful Jew would bring their lamb to the temple and they would have to stand there and watch as the priest sacrificed that animal and the blood flowed. Every week we take communion with bread that represents Jesus' broken body, with a cup of juice that represents his blood. It's a visual reminder that he was crucified crucified in our place. And I believe that God set up this system because it's the only way for human beings to take sin seriously. And so it is the blood of Jesus, his death, that takes care of God's justice. And as a result of what Jesus did, we do not get the justice we deserve. Instead, we receive mercy that we do not deserve. God's mercy not only changes the way that we relate to God, it also changes the way that we relate to each other because God's mercy sets us free to stop thinking tribally. And that's what Paul writes about next as we continue on in verse 14. For he himself, he's talking about Jesus, he himself is our peace and has made the two groups one and has destroyed the barrier, the dividing wall of hostility by setting aside in his flesh the law with its commands and regulations. His purpose, Jesus' purpose, listen to this, was to create in himself one new humanity out of the two, thus making peace. And in one body, 
to reconcile both of them to God through the cross by which he put to death their hostility. Hostility put to death on the cross. He came and preached to you who were far away, Gentiles, and peace to those who were near, Jews. For through him, Jesus, we both have access to the Father by one spirit. And consequently, you are no longer foreigners and strangers, but fellow citizens with God's people and also members of his household built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets with Christ Jesus himself as the chief cornerstone. I wonder if we realize just how powerful these words are. Paul once had been a devout Jew who hated Gentiles. Hated them. And now he writes about Jews and Gentiles living together in peace as fellow believers in Christ. How is that possible? How do you get rid of deep-seated, lifelong hate? I believe it's only possible through a transforming encounter with Jesus. Jesus stepped into Paul's life and he took away his prejudice because Jesus mercifully removes the barriers that we erect which make it so difficult for people from different ethnic groups to live together in peace. And Paul gives us a very vivid example of what the old hostility looked like with his comments here in verse 14. He talks about this dividing wall and he's referring to one particular wall in the Jewish temple. You see, if you were a Gentile and wanted to come to the Jewish place of worship to check out God, you could not just roam around wherever you wanted. You only were allowed limited access. And you would go into the temple just a little bit, and then you'd encounter this wall. And on this wall, there was an inscription, which basically said, if you're a Gentile and you go any farther than this, we're probably going to kill you. Isn't that a wonderful word of welcome in the house of God? See, that wall represented the huge ethnic and spiritual barrier between Jews and Gentiles. And Paul tells us here that that Jesus symbolically tore that wall down by taking care of God's justice once and for all so that everyone could experience God's mercy. And that symbolic destruction of the wall became a physical reality in 70 AD when the Jewish temple was leveled by the Romans. That dividing wall was taken down by God, never to be rebuilt. Jews and Gentiles who are followers of Jesus can, in fact, live together in peace. To paraphrase Paul, two tribes, Jew and Gentile, have become one. Do we realize how incredible this is? Centuries of ethnic animosity were nailed to the cross with Jesus. Centuries of hate and hostility were nailed to the cross with Jesus. It is there if the people of God will accept it and embrace it. Through Jesus, we can live in peace with people who are not at all like us. And we need to understand that this is not the norm in human history. But God wants it to be the norm for his kingdom. And what we read here in Ephesians 
is describing just the first step. In the book of Galatians, the apostle Paul goes into more detail, and he describes some of the specific relational barriers we create that result in division and discord. Barriers that Jesus wants to destroy because his goal is that we live together in a community of peace, a community without man-made barriers. Look what Paul writes to the church in Galatia. So in Christ Jesus, you are all children of God through faith. For all of you who were baptized into Christ have clothed yourselves with Christ. There is neither Jew nor Gentile, neither slave nor free, nor is there male and female, for you all are one in Christ Jesus. If you belong to Christ, then you are Abraham's seed and heirs according to the promise. The Bible tells us that the promises of God are passed down through Abraham. His descendants were invited into a very special relationship with the creator of heaven and earth, and they became the children of God. And now Jesus, a descendant of Abraham, paves the way for anyone to enjoy these promises. No longer do you need to be a biological descendant of Abraham to be his spiritual heir. We are in God's family and a recipient of all the promises of God if we are a follower of Jesus Christ. And Paul tells us how to become a follower. We become a follower of Jesus by faith. It means we choose to believe that the blood of Jesus takes care of the justice of God so we can receive God's mercy. And how do we take that initial step of faith to place our trust in Jesus? Paul tells us by submitting to baptism, where we become clothed with Christ. I love that description. We become clothed with Christ. We get to put on the character and the nature of Jesus. As God fills us with the Holy Spirit, and he equips us to begin a new way of life. Part of that new way of life is to enter into a new community, a community with all kinds of different people, many of them not like us, people who learn to live together in peace without tribal thinking and without tribal behavior. And so Paul begins this list here by saying again, as he just did in Ephesians, he says that the barrier between Jews and Gentiles has been destroyed. But he also says that Jesus has taken care of the barrier between men and women and the barrier between free people and slaves. The barrier between men and women dates back to the Garden of Eden. We saw that a few weeks ago when we looked at Genesis chapter 3 and we, we learned again how the consequences of sin would distort male-female relationships and lead to battles for power and control. Historically, Men won most of those battles. And the result was nations where women could not own property and women could not vote. Communities where marriage did not fit the biblical pattern of two people merging their lives into one, but communities where a wife was the legal property of her husband. And among the people of God, before Jesus, women even were segregated from men in worship. Privately, they were not encouraged to read and study the Bible, and they were prohibited from reading Scripture and leading prayers for the congregation during worship. 
If you ever want to get a glimpse of what that barrier looks like, go visit an Orthodox Jewish synagogue. And you'll find that just like in the Jewish temple, the synagogue has a dividing wall. Only this wall doesn't divide Jews from Gentiles, it divides men from women. Males and females sit separately to highlight the fact that in this community, as you worship, you are not equal. And as the worship service unfolds, men participate and women spectate. In a very real sense, you worship as two separate tribes. That kind of experience will deepen your appreciation for what Jesus has given us, a community without such a barrier. He destroyed it on the day of Pentecost when he poured out the Holy Spirit on men and women alike. And in the book of 1 Corinthians, Paul tells us that women women did not sit separately in the early church. And they sometimes prayed and spoke prophetically during worship, just like the men, because the barrier was torn down. Two tribes, again, this time male and female, became one through Christ. As I think about what this looks like, I try to imagine myself in this scene. I'm a faithful Jewish man. My wife and I have gone to synagogue all our life. We worship the God of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. And as we come in on Saturday morning on the Sabbath, I go this way, she goes that way. She sits there and watches. I sometimes am asked to lead prayers or read scripture. But now I've come to realize that Jesus is my Messiah. He is my Lord. And we no longer go to synagogue. We go to church and everything's new. And now we come into worship and my wife sits next to me as my equal. And sometimes she's asked to lead prayers for the congregation. Sometimes she might read scripture. And on one incredible occasion, the Holy Spirit came upon her and she uttered a prophecy in the name of the Lord. That's the kind of thing that was happening. It would be new, it would be different, and perhaps it would be be very, very uncomfortable. It certainly would alter your world dramatically. Yet that's what happens when Jesus removes barriers. And how about the issue of slaves and free people? This is a very sensitive topic because of our own nation's very troubled history with slavery. And we tend to see it through that particular lens. We need to understand that Paul is writing to different people at a different time when slavery looked and was experienced differently. For example, here in America, slavery was almost always racially based with whites enslaving blacks. In the world of the New Testament, the Middle East and Asia Minor and Southern Europe, slavery crossed all kinds of racial lines. Whites and blacks and Asians, all could be masters or slaves, depending upon circumstances. Slaves sometimes were people who were captured in war and pressed into service. Destitute people sometimes sold themselves into slavery as the only option for survival. Imagine making that difficult choice. And some destitute parents sold their children into slavery to make a buck 
they have one less mouth to feed. And by the way, that kind of thing still actually happens in our world today. It is rampant in Cambodia where many fathers sell their own daughters into the sex trade. And I'm so grateful for Christians who work in that country to help set those young girls free and remove them from the experience of injustice. They're on a rescue mission, and I pray for them. Paul, those writing to a world where slavery is a bit different, where it's accepted at every level of society. People can't even begin to imagine a world without slavery. And yet, however it's experienced, whatever you call it, the fact is slaves are property. No one should be the property of another human being. Slaves are socially segregated. You'd never have a dinner party and invite your slave as an equal guest in the first century. So consider what Paul's saying here. It is incredibly radical. He's telling believers that Jesus has destroyed this barrier because God's mercy rescues people from unjust treatment. And in that world, at that time, slavery cannot yet be eradicated in society. But I think Paul is saying this. You may not be able to get rid of it culturally, but you can functionally ignore it in the church of Jesus Christ. And so the slave, just like the free person, is welcome in God's family. When you come to worship Jesus, you step into a community where you are equal with everyone else. Paul is saying that once again, we have two tribes, in this case, slave and free. And through Jesus, they become one. And you know, we can learn so much from church history. And we know that the early church took this to heart and they changed their attitudes and actions. Slaves attended worship. They heard the good news of Jesus. They became followers of Jesus who were filled with the Holy Spirit. And as they grew in faith, as they became disciples, God gave them spiritual gifts to help build up the community of faith. And so guess what? Some slaves became leaders in the early church. Because through Jesus, they became part of a community without man-made barriers. So once again, in a way to just consider the impact of this, I find myself imagining a scene. Suppose you're a master back in the first century, and you're a follower of Jesus, and your slave comes to church. He sits next to you in church as your equal. And then as he becomes a follower of Christ and as he grows in grace and wisdom and in knowledge of the Lord, his spiritual gifts become clear and he starts teaching from the Bible during worship. And you, the master, now learn biblical truth from your slave. Your slave teaches you how to be a more faithful follower of Jesus. That would be new. That would be different. That probably would be uncomfortable. It certainly would alter your world dramatically, yet that's what happens when Jesus removes barriers. I find myself wondering, would race relations in America 
have followed a different pattern. If back in the day, the churches in the South would have taken this advice to heart and followed the example of the first century church. I wonder. These are incredible words that Paul is writing to the churches. Through these passages here in Ephesians and Galatians, he's telling us that Jesus mercifully destroys all of these kinds of barriers that we erect so believers can live together in a community of peace. It only will happen, though, if we take God at his word and learn to stop thinking tribally. Because when we start to think tribally and when we start to act tribally, it becomes so very easy to take God's peace, the peace that he wants believers to experience, we can take that peace and throw it out the window. And we can justify all kinds of ungodly behavior. It happened in Rwanda in 1994. And it's hard to believe, but at that time, the nation was 95% Christian. And these largely were active Bible reading church-going Christians. And yet there's a deep-seated belief throughout Africa that the tribe always comes first. In fact, many Rwandan believers made this heartbreaking statement. The blood of the tribe is thicker than the water of baptism. And because of that belief, members of the Hutu tribe believed that they were racially superior to the Tutsi tribe. And it didn't matter that most people in both tribes were Christians. So the Hutus made every effort to wipe out the Tutsis. They embarked on genocide. And they got rid of nearly 70% of that other tribe. As many as one million people were killed by their own brothers and sisters in faith. Tutsis sometimes would run to their churches seeking refuge churches where they had worshipped side by side with Hutus and the Hutus would come into the church and kill them. On one occasion, some Tutsis fled to a nearby Christian medical compound and begged that doctor for help. Oh, he was a believer, but he was from the other tribe. So he locked them in. And then he invited in some soldiers and more than 100 men and women and children were executed, murdered. Christians exterminating Christians. It's the result of tribal thinking. Tribal thinking enables us to put limits on God's mercy. His mercy's for me, but it's sure not for you because you're different. Tribal thinking results in prideful, unjust behavior, and it impairs our ability to walk humbly with God. And we need to be ever so careful or tribal thinking can seep into us. At our last church, we once invited a Messianic Jewish congregation to use our building for their worship. And we started a service for Spanish-speaking immigrants. And some of our members were very resentful about those people. They would say things like, those people, that's such a telling phrase, those people, they're not like us. 
Why are they here in our church? That's tribal thinking. Far too many churches in this country are intentionally racially segregated because white and black and Hispanic and Asian believers do not make the effort to know and understand each other. Instead, we look down on one another and we harbor suspicions of each other because it's so easy to allow ourselves to be dominated by tribal thinking. And race, of course, is just one of the tribes we can choose to identify with. We can make economic status or social status our tribe. We can make gender our tribe. We can make political party our tribe. We can make our generation our tribe. However we do it, though, whenever we start to separate ourselves into separate tribes, we're trying to put back a barrier that Jesus has torn down. Our tribe is the kingdom of God. And as Paul tells us so powerfully here, it's a kingdom where there is neither Jew nor Gentile, neither slave nor free, neither male nor female. And could we perhaps add to this? Could we say that the community of faith should also be neither rich nor poor, neither liberal nor conservative, neither white nor people of color, neither senior citizen nor young adult, because we all are one in Christ Jesus. One church, one community, living and worshiping and serving together in peace. And we can do that because Jesus took God's justice so we all personally can experience God's mercy and then extend it to one another. And here's a very practical way to put this into practice. I want to encourage you to take the Dine With Me Challenge that we announced a couple of months ago. And I'm excited that a number of our members have done just that. It's very simple. You have someone over to your home for dinner that you don't know, and you get to know them to build deeper connections. What I want to do today is this. I want to push the challenge one step further. Don't just get together with someone you don't know. Get together with someone who is not like And as we get together, let's help each other understand that whatever differences we might have, we can be united through Jesus Christ. I believe we need to be intentional about breaking down barriers so that the words of the Apostle Paul become increasingly true for us. In the midst of our differences, in the midst of our diversity, Let's learn to be one in Christ and to live in peace.